Well, welcome once again and good morning. Here we are. We are in week four of Advent, as is witnessed by the four candles that are lit. It's been quite a journey, and yet we're not quite there. We're almost there. We're almost there to where we get to celebrate Christ's birth together. What a joyous time that will be. I was reading this week a quote from author and theologian Frederick Beekner, who stated, The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. I love the sacredness to the season of Advent. Here we are, we're one week away from Christmas, one week away from proclaiming with the angels that Christ has been born, one week away from celebrating God incarnate, God's love shown in sending His Son down to earth. There's a quote from an anonymous author that states, let's approach Christmas with an expectant hush rather than a last-minute rush. And as cheesy as that may be, I love the sense of that because it's so easy, especially in this last week, in the final hour, to allow the hustle and bustle to take away the sense of the sacredness of the moment. It's easy as we go into the stores and they're jam-packed full and the parking lots don't have any parking spaces to start to feel our anxiety and our stress rise and to forget the hush, to forget the sacredness of what is about to happen. And so this week, as we seek to live out paying attention to this Advent season, as we seek to live out having peace in the midst of all the hubbub that's happening around us, I'm excited to journey through this with you, to look to Scripture together, to see where our true peace is found. Before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Lord, that has stood the test of time that will continue to be with us, to guide us in your ways. And so, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we hear your word proclaimed. Lord, may you speak through me this morning. May I simply be your servant. May nothing that I say get in the way of what you wish to declare today. Lord, may you give us open ears and soft hearts to hear your word for us. And may we be changed by it, as only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' holy and matchless name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but most mornings, part of my morning routine sometime in the morning is that I read the news. Now, I don't have the newspaper delivered to my house, but I go online and I look at various news sites, and mostly I read the headlines. Sometimes I'll dig a little bit deeper and read articles. But if you do this, or if you get the newspaper, one of the things you'll notice whenever you read the news is how horrible it is. It doesn't take long to start to see articles written about murders that have occurred, about grand thefts that are happening, about corruption in our world and in our culture, about wars that are happening and the impact of those wars. In fact, I found out this week that there is a helium shortage and that part of the reason there's a helium shortage is because of the war happening in Russia and Ukraine. And the Russian sites where they would do helium are no longer focused there. And so we're seeing a global helium shortage, which you wouldn't think is a big deal, but they use helium in some medical devices and testing, and so it's actually crucial. You see, it doesn't take long reading the news to see that our world is not at peace. That there is turmoil all around us, destruction, sadness, and death and despair. One could wonder, where is the light? 
Where is the hope that we talk about? Where is the peace that we so desire? And while they didn't have news headlines like we do, Israel back in 700 BC would have found itself asking similar questions. Where is the peace? Where is the hope? You see, Israel had been warned of what was to come, their impending doom because of their disobedience to the Lord. Isaiah the prophet had let them know that the Assyrian Empire was going to judge Israel for their idolatry and for their oppression. He had laid out what it would look like that they would suffer from Assyria coming in and eventually Babylon would also come and would destroy Israel because of their idolatry, because of their turning away from God. And yet, Isaiah, in the midst of this, provides a glimpse of hope, a glimpse of hope for Israel that even though they will be judged, that even though things are not going well and going to go well, that there is still hope, that even in the midst of war and turmoil, that there is still a chance at peace. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, this is what the prophet said. It said, Then I said, How long, O Lord? He said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This sets up the text for today and what we're going to be looking at. A text that would have provided Israel with a picture of hope in the midst of this difficult message. So let's take a look and see what it can teach us today as we too hope and seek for peace. If you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to be reading a famous text that many, many have heard and know. And it's a beautiful text from Isaiah. Isaiah is letting Israel know that even though God is bringing judgment, that he will reserve a remnant. That's what's at the end of chapter 10. There will be a remnant reserved. And then he moves into chapter 11, letting them know why they can hope for the future. Why even knowing that judgment is coming, they can still find hope and why that hope will bring about peace. Look at what Isaiah says, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." So remember just a moment ago when I read you from Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah said at the end, as the stump would remain, the holy seed is its stump. So in chapter 6, he let them know that there would be a stump remaining. And here in chapter 11, he picks up again on that theme of this stump, tying it back and giving them a picture of the promise that is coming through that holy seed in that stump. That holy seed coming forth here in the stump of Jesse. Now, I don't know if you've ever chopped down a tree, but I remember when I lived in Littleton, we had a tree that we needed to have taken out. And when they chopped it down, they left a stump and nothing came out of that stump. That stump was dead. There was no line that came out of it. There was no shoot that came forth from that stump. It was just a dead stump. And that's what I'm sure Israel felt like as they went through the destruction and the devastation 
of being taken over by Assyria, of being taken into captivity. And yet Isaiah had let them know that even though the appearance would have been one of death and destruction, that the story was not over. That there was a shoot that would come forth from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This shoot brings about new life from where there was death. This stump of Jesse gives us a picture of where this will come from as Isaiah is prophesying about the future. That this shoot will come through the line of Jesse, the line of King David. And so we're given a picture of that family line that will lead to the Messiah for Israel, that will lead to the one who will come and save and redeem all of Israel. The beauty is that this shoot that comes from the stump doesn't just bring about new life and stop there, but it will bear fruit, we're told. The stump of the house of Jesse will grow and flourish until eventually it will fill the whole earth with its glory. What a picture for people to look forward to, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of losing everything, to hold on to the hope of what is to come. This is a promise from God that even though Israel will go through these trials, even though they will be exiled and not living in their homes, even though they will wonder if they will ever be restored to their land or if they will ever know peace, that there is a hope for the future. That God will not forget about them. That God has a plan. And I imagine that the people of Israel would have read these verses multiple times in the 500 years of darkness when no prophet spoke, when God seemed absent. And I imagine they would have read these verses to remind themselves that there still was hope. That even when the stump looked dead, even when it was burned, that there was still hope that God would be faithful to his word and that God would bring about life from that stump. Well, the verses continue in verse 2 with Isaiah showing us that this shoot coming from live Jesse that we know to be Jesus now on this side of history, he gives us what we can know about the Messiah who is to come. Look at what he says. He names seven things here about the one to come, the promised Messiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. He said he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, and a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is a beautiful picture of a ruler. These are attributes that you would want in a king, in one who is to be in charge and to lead. And that's what Isaiah is giving here to the people of Israel. That the Lord would be upon this one whom he has chosen, this one whom he has sent, because he would be with the Lord. That he would have the ultimate wisdom and understanding as a leader. Unlike earthly mankind who has flawed, who makes mistakes, who doesn't fully grasp and understand or have ultimate wisdom, that this ruler would have the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might with him as well. This picture we're given here by Isaiah, it it adds up to a total of seven attributes that were given resulting this future rule that is coming. And the beauty of this is, if you're not familiar, seven is often in Scripture referred to as God's number. And the reason for this is because the Hebrew number seven represents a completeness, a wholeness, a perfection. So when Isaiah prophesies and gives us these seven attributes of the coming Messiah, seven for a picture of completeness, of wholeness, of perfection, that we know will only be found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
The ESV expository commentary says, Only the one in whom the Spirit dwells in all his fullness can be the true king. You see, the picture that's being painted here is a picture of the fullness of who Christ is. Most human kings would have some of these attributes, flawed version, albeit, but they'd have some of these characteristics and qualities. Perhaps they would be wise like Solomon, but lack the wisdom to find counsel amongst others. Or maybe they wouldn't have the fear of the Lord like David often had, but they'd have a strength. And yet this picture painted here shows us the ultimate picture of the Messiah. Isaiah has started to show us who the Messiah is. But let's continue in verse 3 to see the implications of this rule for the Messiah. Verse 3 says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah moves us along here in this prophecy, now showing us the implications of how this king will rule. Starting with that the king will rule with delight in the fear of the Lord. Delight in those who fear the Lord. There's an importance in fearing the Lord and having that reverence and awe for who God is compared to who we are. And the coming Messiah will delight in people's proper fear of the Lord. This word delight is used elsewhere in Scripture of God smelling a sweet odor from sacrifices. It suggests a total commitment, an enthusiastic endorsement. And so Christ, as he comes, desires that people would fear the Lord. He desires that there be that total commitment and that enthusiastic endorsement which would bring about that sweet odor of delight for him. Isaiah lets us know, though, that as he comes and as he hopes to find this, that he will also come with judgment. But he will not judge as man often does. Mankind often judges with what we see or what we hear. And we see throughout Scripture multiple times that this is not how God judges. It makes me think of when David is picked as king and is told that God judges not by height or stature, but by what is inside a man. And so we see here in Isaiah's prophecy that as Christ comes, that he will judge with righteousness towards the poor, with equity for the meek. This idea of equity for the meek that Christ will bring about is a level place free from obstacles. It's an uprightness with how Christ will judge. And you may have heard the word meek before and wondered, well, what does that mean when it says meek? Well, it's this idea of a poor, afflicted, humble person. Those who often are oppressed by the rich and powerful. And this attitude that Christ has towards the meek, towards the poor, we see come about, come to fruition in Matthew 5 when Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Mount and shows his attitude towards the meek and the poor. And all throughout his ministry, we see how Christ loves the least of these, how he cares for those who are cast aside by society often, that he doesn't judge based off appearances, but he judges based off the heart of man. Isaiah continues letting us know that when this judgment comes, that part of the judgment is that Jesus will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
This picture of striking, it's a smiting that is shown here. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This is important to see because it gives us the idea, the, uh, the thought here from Isaiah, from this prophecy, that there will be judgment. Something we don't like to talk a lot about this day and age. And yet we see it throughout Scripture. Thankfully, we are not the ones who will judge people's salvation. We are not the ones who will judge who is evil versus who is committed to the Lord. We can encourage one another to live out how Scripture calls us to live. And that's part of our role in the church People often steer away from judgment and say, oh, we're called not to judge our brothers or sisters. Yes, it's not your job to judge whether someone goes to heaven or hell, but we can hold people to the word of God. And if our fellow brothers or sisters in Christ aren't living in accordance with the word of Scripture, we can call them to accountability, to live how God has called us to live. That's not the kind of judgment that's talking about when it says we're not to judge And here in this text, when it talks about the judgment that's going to occur, it's not talking about calling someone to live in a Christ-like manner as Scripture calls us to live, but it's talking about separating those who are good from those who are evil. Those who will be with Christ from those who won't be with Christ. And that those who are wicked, that those who are not following the Lord, that there will be a death, there will be judgment. But notice what Isaiah says in verse 5 as he follows up on this judgment. He says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The clothes that are described for Christ here, even in judgment, are righteousness and faithfulness, showing that Christ, as he judges, will judge with complete fairness. That he is the ultimate judge And he doesn't judge with bias. He doesn't judge based off of just looks or appearances. But knowing all, he can judge with fairness, with righteousness. And we can find comfort in that fact. Isaiah has shown how the king will come and with him the judgment. But what will the result be of all of this? Well, he will set things right. Look at the picture that Isaiah points to in verses 6 through 10. It's a picture, unlike any other, that provides us with a sense of peace. Picking up in verse 6, Isaiah says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." You see, Isaiah knows that no matter what Israel is about to go through, the judgment that's coming upon them for their disobedience and idolatry, that there is still one day when things will be set right, that there is one day when the Messiah will come to redeem Israel, to redeem all of humanity who places their faith and their trust in him as their Lord and Savior, and that what will come with the Messiah is peace. And the picture of peace that he provides us here is a beautiful picture. 
Isaiah shows us that the king will put right the evils of society, not just that, but restore things to their original created order prior to the curse in Genesis 3. The image presented here by Isaiah is one in which animals that are usually predators will lie down with their prey at peace together. What an image of peace that those who usually pursue and kill will be able to lie down with one another. Wolf with lamb, leopard with young goat, calf with lion, all led by a child. A beautiful picture of peace. And this is not a reality that we have ever seen. In fact, it's one that could only occur by the power and might of God. Really, it is the ultimate picture of peace that Isaiah gives us here. I love how the ESV expository commentary puts it when it says, The original command to humans to rule over the earth in Genesis 1.28, never revoked and indeed reaffirmed after the flood, is now being realized but without cruelty and exploitation. Such is the safety and harmony of the new creation that a small child is perfectly safe and that harmony between humans and the rest of the created order is secure. Isaiah paints a picture here of such peace that these animals who usually a parent would seek to keep their young child away from will be able to lead them. It's a picture that one can only hope for, that one can only look forward to one day when God will make it come to fruition. Isaiah continues in verse 7 and 9, continuing to provide this picture of peace, even going so far as to saying a nursing child who's obviously one who's very young will play over a den of snakes without being hurt. You see, the terror, the fear of the beast will be gone, but it doesn't come from anything that we do. It's not something that you and I can do or accomplish to set right. It's not something in the created order that we can go out and act differently and all of a sudden this will come to fruition. It's clear in verse 9 why this occurs. And it is only because of the efforts of Yahweh. Verse 9 again says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, it is only because of God because of what he has done, because of how he establishes peace, because of how he reestablishes the created order to how it is intended to be. The picture here is brought full circle as Isaiah reminds the people that all of this comes about from the root of Jesse, which is a signal for the people that one day the king will arrive and with him a kingdom of peace will come about. We saw a glimpse of this when Jesus came to earth, when he brought about a different way of living, a way that ushered in his kingdom of peace. However, it was just a glimpse of the reality of the picture of peace that we still await. It's the having seen a glimpse of it and yet waiting for what is to come. As we've talked about this Advent season, it's the same thing. It's a celebrating Christ's birth and yet waiting for that day when he will come again. So that's why you may look out and say, well, I don't see this picture of peace even though Christ has come because Christ has not completed what he has set out to do. We are still waiting in that in-between time. And so we can hold on, as Israel would have as well, to the hope that one day when Christ set things completely right, that this will be the picture of peace 
that we are given. Isaiah provides us a picture of peace here that is unparalleled anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. And yet, it's not a call for action for Israel. Rather, it's simply a proclamation of the good news that they are to hear. And for us today, we too can hear this good news of peace and allow it to lead us toward Christ. But let me suggest three ways that I believe that we can also put this into practice as we learn from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11. The first is to remember the fact that judgment is real, that the shoot of Jesse brings about judgment. Horace Gray was a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. During one of his cases, a criminal was about to be released, not because he was innocent, but because of a technicality. And as Gray prepared to release the man, he said this to the man, I know that you are guilty and you know it, and I want you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge, and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. As I read this story, it reminded me of how often I think that we downplay the judgment of God. We worry that judgment of God is off-putting towards people, that if we want to share the gospel, all we can ever talk about is the grace and love of God. And so our churches as a whole have become soft in relation to judgment, out of a fear that it will turn people away. And yet what we've created is a soft Christianity as well. And what we've created is a cheapening of grace because without judgment, we can't fully experience the grace of God. Because the reality is all of us, me included, deserve God's full wrath of judgment. We are sinners who are flawed, who have made mistakes, who have time and time again turned away from the Lord and pursued our own desires. And there is a judgment that we deserve. And yet, God offers us grace. And so as I read this text today, it's clear that there is a judgment that is coming. We see it elsewhere in Scripture as well. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 through 37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And there's many other texts as well that point to the fact that one day you and I will stand before the judge that we will be judged for our time here on earth. Now, the beauty is that Jesus Christ offers us grace that will intercede on our behalf. But there is a judgment, and we must be aware of that, and we must be willing to speak about that, to acknowledge the fact that there is a judgment that will come. When we look at the picture of who God is, yes, He is love, and He is grace, and He is peace. But read through Scripture and look at how Christ is described. Look at how he's described when he comes again. He comes bearing a sword when he comes again. He comes to judge the living and the dead. It's not something that we are to take lightly. But the beauty of Isaiah's passage is that we can know that there is judgment, but we can also look forward to the peace that Christ has brought and will continue to bring, recognizing our need for repentance because without repentance, we will not experience true peace. For there's only one way to find true peace in this world, and even in eternity, and that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. That's the second point that this text teaches us, is that Jesus is God's saving sign to all. 
That in this prophecy, Isaiah gives us, it points to Christ, that he is the sign that God desires to save us. He is the one way that we can experience salvation. He is the one way that we can be free from the judgment covered by Christ's blood. There is only one way to redeem Israel and the world. Look at how Paul describes it in Romans 15, 8 through 9. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, that in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, Jesus Christ came to save. He was given as a sign to all that we would know God's love, his mercy, and his grace. And so as we seek to proclaim the peace that God offers, we must remember in our own lives and in our sharing with others that is all based upon Jesus Christ. Jesus was given as a sign for the whole world that he brings salvation for sinners. What great news. What joyous news for us today and every day. What joyous news to share with others as we proclaim the peace of Christ this Advent season. It's such a beautiful thing when I hear stories of people sharing about how they're just going about living their lives for Christ, seeking to live in the peace of Christ as he rules their lives and their hearts, and other people take notice. And they say, tell me why you have peace in the midst of turmoil. Tell me why when the world seems to be just going crazy, you have peace. And what a wonderful opportunity it is to not gloat about our own abilities, to not say, well, I'm so great, or I've done X, Y, and Z to achieve this peace. I meditate this many minutes a day, and I exercise, and I eat healthy. But no, to say, there's only one way I have peace. It's because of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the sign that Christ is for all, the sign of salvation that is given to us. My last thing for us to notice in the text today is that Jesus is our final home and that we can find ultimate peace in him. There was a young man who constantly quarreled with his father. And finally, he left home without saying goodbye. He continued to keep in touch with his mom, but he had cut off connections with his dad. After a few years, he wanted to come home for Christmas very badly, but he was afraid that his dad would not allow it. His mom wrote to him and urged him to come home. But inside, he felt he couldn't do it until he knew that his father had forgiven him. They wrote back and forth a few times about it, and finally, there wasn't time for any more letters. His mother wrote that she would talk to his dad, and if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white rag on the tree right next to the railroad tracks in their backyard. He would be able to see the train before, he would be able to see the tree before the train reached the station. If there was no rag, he would go on and not stop. So the young man started for home. As the train got close to his home, he became so nervous that he couldn't look out the window. So he said to his friend who was sitting next to him, I can't bear to look. Would you sit in my place and look out the window for the big tree in my backyard next to the tracks and tell me if there is a white rag tied to it or not? So his friend traded places with him and looked out the window. After a while, the friend said, oh, I see the tree. And the son asked, is there a white rag tied to it? For a moment, his friend didn't say anything. Then he turned and in a soft voice said, there is a white rag tied to every limb of the tree. 
That's what the Bible is saying in John 3.17, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to remove the condemnation. He came to save the world. When we look at Isaiah's words today, at the prophecy of the coming Messiah, we can be encouraged that Jesus wants us, that Jesus loves us and cares for us, and that our ultimate home can be found in him, and our ultimate peace can be experienced in Christ alone. Revelation 22:16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What good news that is. What glorious news that we can take comfort and find peace in. To know that Jesus has been sent by God, God incarnate, to bring about a kingdom of peace on earth. And that we can look forward to knowing that what Christ began, he will bring to fruition. What he promised, he will fulfill when he returns. So this week, as we prepare to celebrate Christ's birth, may we remember that it is in Christ that we find forgiveness. That it is in Christ that we are welcomed home. And may we experience his peace unlike anything else as we worship him alone. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming to earth, for the sacrifice that you made so that we could truly know your peace. Lord, help us to rest in it this week. Lord, amidst the busyness, amidst the chaos, amidst the multiple appointments and parties and dinners and gatherings and presents, Lord, none of it matters without you. It all pales in comparison to who you are and to what you offer us. So Lord, may we be willing to slow down this week, to seek you out above all. Lord, to give our time not just to others, but to prayer, to be in your presence. And Lord, when we do that, when we come before you, Lord, may you fill us with your peace. May we know your peace through your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And Lord, may you change us. Change us from the inside out that we would reflect you, that we would shine brightly for you to all those around us. And Lord, that we would not be able to stop worshiping and praising you, for you alone are deserving of all worship and praise. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophets who spoke truth in the midst of darkness. Thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, may we be faithful to you always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.